Welcome to episode 29 of Paws, Claws and Wet Noses, the Kiwi Veterinary Sector Podcast celebrating all creatures, great and small, and the fantabulous professionals who look after them all. I'm your show host, Julie South. This is the second episode of the two-part series with Dr. Francesca Brown of the Otago Polytech. If you haven't listened to the first part yet, I highly recommend that you do that before you carry on with this episode, because this one kind of slots into that one. You can find the first part as episode 28 at pawsclawswetnoses.fm. I'll put the show notes on, or I'll put the link on this week's show notes as well. Uh, This week, Dr. Francesca carries on from where we finished up last week. We talk more about leadership, KPIs to measure in your clinic, and then help and then the help that Dr. Francesca is asking of you as a clinic owner or manager for the next research that she's embarking on. If you're attending the Combined Vet Nurse Vet Conference this year in Christchurch, coming up pretty soon in June, the third week in June 2021, be sure to register for her presentation as part of the business track. And if you haven't already, please click the follow button on your favorite podcast channel so that you don't miss out on future episodes of Paws, Claws, Wet Noses. That counts for any podcast that you're listening to. Hit the follow, click the follow button. It doesn't cost anything to do that. An old vet told my father when he was a student in Glasgow, he said, uh, if you want to be a success in veterinary practice, just keep the bowels open and trust the rest to God. Nutrition's not an opinion, it's a science. They called me that weird herbal needle vet, and I, I just remember thinking, well, I'm still going to do it, because I know it works, and I've got the research to back it. From reminiscences of the real James Harriet son, to pet nutrition, to acupuncture, the Vet Podcast discusses current animal health issues from around the world. I'm veterinarian Brian Gregor from New Zealand. Just search for the Vet Podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Paws, Claws and Wet Noses is sponsored by Vet Staff. If you've never heard of Vet Staff, it's New Zealand's only full-service recruitment agency, 100% dedicated to the veterinary sector. Vet Staff has been around since 2015 and works nationwide, from Cape Reinga to the Bluff and everywhere in between. As well as helping Kiwis, vet staff also helps overseas qualified veterinarians find work in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Vetstaff.co.nz We absolutely saw it in the research where the employers thought they had it right and the employers said, no, not quite. And so feedback is really, really important and regular feedback. There are surveys like um, Gallup 12, which has, you know, got, 12 questions looking at well-being at different levels from the basic stuff. So it's, it's kind of designed a little bit like Maslow's hierarchy, you know, where there's the basic needs and then up to really quite high performance areas. And you can use that or I uh, what I used in the research I did is I designed a work environment survey based on one I'd been um, exposed to in education, but tailored it for veterinary practice and also particularly challenging areas in veterinary practice. But when I measured, when I looked at that against Gallup 12 later, it was a similar kind of thing as well it was looking at basic where basic needs being met trust in the team respect what are, what's our feeling around leadership you know we think the lead the leadership's kind of transformational or is it dictatorial that kind of thing I looked at things like did they think that they were being paid enough to meet their own financial needs so it's not about asking what people are paid it's asking them are your needs being met because everyone's needs are different and you know there's a certain amount level that people need and this was one thing actually in these three high performing practices and this is not an excuse to poorly pay but that these three practices still weren't performing that well on pay. It was about 60% agreement that they were being paid enough to meet their financial needs. And that was both vets. So the the loss on how high they scored and that was vets and allied veteran professionals. It wasn't just the allied veteran professionals. So they didn't, they, they hadn't scored as well on that as um, everything else. They were well in the 80% and higher. Um, but looking at, yeah, basic needs, 
respect. Uh, I looked at position descriptions. Did they know what their job was? You know, those kind of things. Did they think that they had a professional development plan that was helping to develop them, you know, or, uh, and, you know, talking about funds and things to do that? Because one of the things with staff is about, one of, one of the needs of staff is, is actually they need to have a pathway, some sort of professional development. And practices will go, well, I don't need anyone more than that, so why would I? But it's not about that. It's about developing the person and making them feel valued. So I'm going to develop you, make you feel valued. Maybe a position will develop there because of the skills that they grow into. Or, you know, it's okay to grow them out of your job. If you really don't want to grow your business and you want to sit here, <laughs> why then grow that person out of the job and take someone else on. You know, it's just it's the right thing to do. So I was looking at those sort of things in the feedback. And then what we did was, you know, what I would do, say, if we were doing that on a regular basis is look at, well, what were, what were the things that were the poorest scores that we could actually make the biggest difference on and go, right, here are our three goals for this year. Not not try and do 25 goals because it's not achievable. Choose the three that are going to make the biggest difference, but not as the boss. Get the team to choose. What are the three things, if we're going to choose three things this year to get a better score on what are they going to be and then rerun exactly the same survey again 12 months later and see did those things shift but what else shifted because sometimes if one thing shifts it'll shift other things too so it's not you know it's not a clear you know you don't just go oh I'm just going to measure those again you've got to measure where everything else is and then look at it again and go where are we going next year so if you don't have that you actually don't know Um, it's it's a blind spot not knowing what your staff are actually thinking and Yes, it would be really nice to think that the staff will always tell you, but they won't. Even in the best cultures, there's some people who will just never say anything. And in poor cultures, less people will say things. Yeah. And so by giving them a, a, a an outlet to say it and then not – I think one of the things with feedback and people who aren't used to receiving feedback is that it's offensive. And feedback can be really, really offensive. So it's actually learning as the receiver of feedback to actually go, what are – I don't think that. So why do other people think that? What What's their view on on that? And how can we make things better? Rather than going, oh my God, I've got to you know bat that feedback away because I feel offended by it. So it is a really challenging thing to do. But when you get your head around it, feedback becomes so much more valuable. And as a team, you can work together to improve things. Because um, often the feedback's not personal. It's not actually personal. It's just the way things are done, it might be process driven, it might be communication driven. One of the, the Gallup questions is that, or the, the one of the Q12, is that the, the manager, the, the employee feels like they are needed and respected at work because the manager checks in with them. Was that a regular standard operating procedure in these clinics? Yes. How often yep. did they meet? Offer, it wasn't always formal. So in one of them, they met, I think they were meeting weekly, sort of for about 15 minutes. They were catching up. But another one, it was more done informally during the day. They'd make sure that they went around and had a chat to everybody. Uh, maybe they'd help them with a task while just chatting to them and seeing how things were getting on. So it varied between the practices. But what they tried to do was make sure that there was a one-on-one conversation regularly. With, with each of the staff. They also talked about having, you know, open door policies and making sure that staff felt like they could come and talk to them, but not in a way where it was disruptive. So, you know, they would say, you know, have you got time now for a chat or can we make a time for a chat? So not not just that constant, you can come in any time and dump on me, um, but in a, in a more controlled way. But they all, and the reporting from the staff was they felt they could go and approach the the leadership team if they needed to but a step back from that was also I can talk to my colleagues if I think something's so I think one of the things in a healthy team situation is that you don't always go to the boss when there's a problem your first step is to just talk to the person while the problem's little and this was happening in these practices they felt like they could have the conversations at a low level they didn't have to escalate it a lot I've heard that some clinics have like time out spaces or zones when a professional is just at you know they've just had a horrible experience mm-hmm. or a horrible outcome and they just need to 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 just decompress. Did your clinics have that as well? Yep, they all had, I guess, I guess it wasn't a, a solely a timeout room, but they all had a staff room space. So there was a space and not, we make the operating table the staff room, you know, it was actually, they had a staff room space where staff could go out. These guys all made sure they had tea breaks. 
together. Now, one of the practices was bigger, so they, they had the two-shift tea break. So they had half the team and then half the team So because they, they could keep running. The smaller ones, they do, they would do it all, you know, all at one time where they would stop and pause. But also all of them allowed their staff to walk away for five minutes. One of them had a nice garden area where they could step out, which was not client space. It was a staff space um, where they could walk out and, you know, take a deep breath or, you know, if it wasn't tea time, then the staff rooms were empty, people could walk away. One of the practices was starting to introduce mindfulness in the morning where they had a session for five to 10 minutes each morning, just getting everyone in the zone and breathing together. And, as a group. Yeah, as a group, yeah. Yep. Yep. And, yep. and the morning teas, it's really easy for the receptionist to to be excluded from team events. So did, this, did these clinics when they had their combined morning teas, were the receptionists part of those yes. as well? Yes, yeah. 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 So they they very much were inclusive. And this is actually going back to the language conversation. They they talked about the team as the, the whole team. You know, they didn't talk about the vets or the vet nurses. It was they didn't the have team. the front and the back. No, no it back, was the whole the team front. and everybody had a, um, a valuable um, part to play. And another way that that was shown too was one – particular clinic were really hot on telling me how when they do rounds and they talked about clients and case, well, cases, sorry, um, they would ask the opinion of the veterinary nurse, the kennel hand, you know, if the receptionist had been involved, you know, maybe they had a bit of a chat with the client, they would be involved as well to, so that they could get all those different perspectives on what was happening and what was going to be the best for this animal. Yeah. I, I yeah, did. like, you know, often the front, you know, the front of house people find out more about the living environment of the animal and the client than the vet does, you know, those sort of things, yeah, which make a big difference to what you're going to do. Don't know whether you'll be able to answer. To, were con, do you know what the consult times were for these clinics? Actually, I didn't ask specifically, but I'm pretty sure they were 15 minutes, so they weren't okay. extra long ones. And I didn't, you know, all these things in hindsight would have been good to do. I didn't delve into whether they lengthened the consults and actually charged for them. So they, they de- I know they definitely lengthened the consults when they were needed, but I'm not sure if they right. had, you know, extra charges for yeah. them. Yeah. And do you know, second question, do you know whether these clinics were, whether their fees were market comparable or were they more or lower higher or lower than again I didn't I didn't look specifically into those for them I know one of them was quite an expensive clinic and the clients told me that but they still wanted to go there so you know one clinic you know just pure location large city you know it's expensive to yeah. have a building in there and function in that area um and the client said that there's one thing they changed it with the fee but at the same time they, you know they're all saying we love this place and we're always coming back and the staff are great and they care for my animal you know everything's positive yeah um it's only when you force them to say well what's one thing you changed that that was you know and actually it was only it wasn't the, you know it wasn't the whole entire it was maybe half the client's Put that down, but the others had lots of other things, you know, little things. How about insurance? Was insurance, pet insurance, part of of the clinic? Yep. So high level of pet insurance at that at the clinic that I just talked about, um, that had relatively high fees as well. They also had high pet insurance. They and I said, "How have you done that?" I said, "I said it's your clientele, isn't it? It's where you are." They went, "No, our clientele are across the spectrum. So they have rich to poor clientele." And they said they didn't, as far as they were aware, on what they'd done, they didn't have. It wasn't more insurance at one end or anything like that. They had insurance across the board. They said it's because they believed in it. They explained it to the clients in a way because they believed it, and then the clients believed it, and yes. and you know, bought it that way. Do you know whether any of these clinics? paid their teams a base salary and a KPI, some kind of KPI bonus? Not the three clinics that were the three ones. There was another practice that did. Um, it was done even. It was done evenly across the board. Right. Um, that particular practice had heaps of perks as well. It was, yeah, so th- this is quite another interesting thing that would be interesting to look at is there's quite a lot of perks that come with working in a veterinary practice and some practices have an incredible number of perks but I don't know that practices are all that good at valuing them in the salary package and sometimes it's hard because if you go well you get free vet consults so I've got 10 animals so I do really well out of it whereas someone else has only got one they don't do quite as well so it's quite hard to value it but um, I think there is a value in some of those things which could be you know looked at alongside the salaries as being you know a 
So some, you know, yes, the salaries are poor and yes, they need to be dealt with, but there are some benefits we forget to advertise, I guess, yeah. as part yeah. of salary. Yeah, yeah. I, I've put together a, a package for a vet and there was that the, this vet got an increase, an actual increase in salary. They also got other benefits and the other benefits amounted to about $20,000 per annum mm. and there was more so that was the first 12 months at the the 24 month mark there was more still mm. and yeah they yeah. they add up and and the clinic yes. is the the longevity of the staff is very very long um you know some of the the staff have seen clients kids come through you know clients mm. and then their kids come through the practice mm. with and with you know that pain. tells you something yeah yeah about yeah. about the practice being a good yeah. culture it's one of the things um even though um you know these practices still were a little not as low as some of the others but a little bit lower on you know their, whether their financial needs were being met they all said i love working here the culture is so good i want to stay because i don't think i'd find such a good culture somewhere else and you know they felt that they were well looked after well respected well valued you know all of the things that people want yeah and that they could do their job unimpeded yeah okay so somebody is listening to this and they're thinking i i need i need i want hopefully i want (laughs) because with want comes desire i want to change how things are in my clinic where would you suggest that they start what should they first look at what would be their first steps I think the first steps would be to sit down and see where they were now so I think probably for a practice that's already fun you know not one that's starting from scratch one that's already functioning is actually go let's get some sort of measure of where we are now because I think I know where we are but I actually don't know surely what everybody thinks so let's get a picture of where everybody's at, where everything's at. Um, it's a, I think it's a good idea to get someone outside to do that because if you run it, they're not going to trust necessarily, particularly if there is some underlying not, you know, not trust there, that you might try and interpret comments and feedback as from them and then point fingers. And you don't want that to happen. If you get it done externally, you get a report that doesn't show all of that stuff. And so um, you can take away any, any risk of personalisation, I guess, out of it. Get a measure of where things are at and the measure will give you some ideas of how your leadership is viewed, what sort of support you need there. Are the vision and values actually meaningful to the staff because maybe, you know, yeah, they're there, but we don't even know what they are or, can, you know, you're asking questions about can they can you actually say them? You know, if I went and asked any of your staff, could they tell me what they were? Through to, you know, whether the rostering systems are working for them, whether the profession, you know, professional development, they're position descriptions do they respect you know their leaders do they feel like they're respected as a team member you know lots of all of those questions figure out where the practice is at and then sit down with someone and make a plan about what needs to happen and often it's going to start with as a team collaboratively we need to sort out the vision and values again and you can say but my team changes and therefore we're going to have to keep changing no no you just need to do it once as a team and get it right and then start building it in and then as new people come on board as the practice grows or whatever they come into that culture that you've already got going but if you've got a culture where the vision and values are just a piece of paper in a dusty drawer um, they aren't actually being enacted anyway so get them sorted out what do they actually mean what does each value mean if, if there's some indication that and even if there's not to be fair that leadership needs some you know maybe that needs some support with leadership is get some leadership support and then start working with the team on working out some KPIs for improving it for the year. What, what's most important this year? What are we going to do and really engage in it? I mean, you've got to buy into it. You've got to walk the talk. But without fail, the staff told me this: their leaders walked the talk for these three practices. They were absolutely there doing what they said. Everything that came out of their mouths was actually what they meant. What, what would you say to a clinic that's saying, I don't have time for that. <laughs> I can't sit around. I can't organise morning teas for all my team at one time. I can't take half a day off for team team meetings. Yeah, so there's there's a couple of things. And again, that needs time to sit down and think about why why is the 
why are you saying I can't? Um, is it I can't because actually you're trying to do two or maybe three jobs, which I think is the case for some veterinarians who are trying to be full-time clinical vets and full-time practice managers and everything else that you need to be in business. And it might be that you've actually got to sit down and look at the business model and go, actually, I can't do three jobs. I've got to break that up and we've got to employ someone to do different parts of it. And for that, you have to let go, to be fair, <laughs> to do that. But you also have to budget that as well. So putting that into your budget, how are you going to make that work? Um, and then the solutions don't need to come from you. You just need to lead the solutions. The team have the solutions. You've got so much expertise in a team You've just got to give them the floor to be able to come up with the solutions. And they, they'll need some boundaries around what's realistic and what's not. Um, and, you know, you might have some knowledge that they don't have, but together you can, you'll can you be able to work out solutions. And you can't fix everything tomorrow, but you can prioritise and go, these are actually our three priorities. So it might well be that the first priority is you're understaffed because actually you're doing three jobs. So you need to sort that out. That might be priority number one. Then you sort that out, which then rolls on to the next thing. The three clinics that you ended up studying, were their teams, the employees in their teams, all full-time, 40-hour-a-week employees or did no. they no okay so what no. did that look like so some um so often they were four day a week vets or part-time vets and vet nurses as well they worked with the um, what all of these teams decided is a lot of the staff that they wanted that were important to their teams didn't want to couldn't work full-time I mean some people can't they can't function full-time um, maybe because they've got so much else on or they simply don't want to um, so what these teams said is they did have a plethora of part-timers and they said there's challenges in that, which there is, and it's around communication because sometimes one team member will never work with another team member. So it's really important to be aware um, and formulate a communication plan that's going to work when you've got part-time teams. But these are part-time teams that are happy and when they're communicating well between each other, so good quality notes, good handovers, clarity on who's on at what time and whose roles are, you know, what, what people's roles are. Um, they had happier staff. Staff's needs were being met. So when you asked them the question around was the rostering working for them, you had really high um, reports on that. And, you know, these practices did everything they could to try and work a roster that allowed um, their staff to go and coach a sports team or watch their kid at assembly who was getting an award or, you know, those things that become really, really important. And actually, I think what happened and from what I could see as the employee and, and you know, in my own team, I've got a lot of part-timers and we have a lot of flexibility and it's about that they give back twice as much as you give them because they're so grateful that you let them go to assembly or let them coach the sports team or whatever it was that you ne they, they needed to do. And and you think some people do take the mic, but I don't think they're the, they're not the majority. The majority of people just are so grateful and will give back and give extra all of the time. And we, we all know, you know, um, in veterinary clinics, staff are giving all of the time because animals don't get sick within opening hours um, or the consult doesn't always, you know, the last 15 minute consult could end up being a couple of hours by the time things are done for the client. So, you know, they give all the time. And so being able to give back to them is really, really important. And, and it can be done, but it's about communicating. And one of the things I did talk to a practice, they weren't reported on a master's they said, I want to tell you about our well-being journey and how we stuffed up. And they stuffed up in a way that, and, and they are still on their well-being journey, but they fixed their stuff up. What they did was they gave too much autonomy to the staff. So they forgot to say, this is our values. We're here. We're a customer service business. Therefore, we need to have X number of staff on between these times. We need this. And so they had staff just choosing when to work and when not to work and signing in and out. And there was all sorts of kind of, and, and you know that he laughed with me and said, yeah, I know it's pretty logical, isn't it, now when you look at it. But So the business have to give a frame around it and say, as a team, this is what we need. But you guys, let us know how you're going to make that work so that it's going to work for you guys too. Yeah. And then people will give and take. Some people go, well, I can't make it that time, but I'll get the next one, you know. Yeah. And it was the same with sharing holidays. I've heard from practice that don't do a great job at sharing, you know, the Easter and the Christmas holidays and the, these practices shared them really well. They had it all documented about who had had what holiday. And if people wanted to swap, it was fine, but they all showed evenness in it. And it wasn't a case of the, the bosses going, well, we don't, we're the boss now, we don't work Christmas. They worked it as well, but on the same rotation. Talking about rosters, last year I 
placed a vet who went from locum to permanent. And the reason she was a locum was because she liked um, working three or four days a week. And she liked being able to go overseas. That hasn't happened. But <laughs> the 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 clinic that wanted to hire her said, yeah, she wants to work three days a week. These are the days. And they were broken up. You know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, <laughs> that's no good to, to anybody that wants to take to go away. And mm. so we went back and we negotiated and it started off, well, the other vets work these rosters. We can't possibly change these guys to match this new incumbent. It just won't work. So I went back to them and said, let's let's pretend we have this clean whiteboard where everybody can put their wants on this as to what days they want to work. And let's start afresh. Everybody in that team got juggled around and they got juggled around to the way they wanted. It was such a great outcome. Yeah, and no, look, I believe, you know, watching those three practices that did that, I believe that that can happen. We don't have to stick to these traditional rosters or, you know, it's always been like that, so why would we change it? I can remember when uh, one of the practices I worked in um, when I was still in clinical practice, we worked something like uh, eight till two and then we would work again from four till six and we had this two hour, you know, if you've got a family and stuff, it doesn't work. Well, it was sort of, yeah, between 12 and two, you'd go off depending on when you finished and back on at four and it didn't work, you know, but Somebody could work for eight hours at the beginning and someone you could have a crossover and run consults at a different time. And I know like him, I did, they they said, I'll start consults at four. And I said, well, no, I'll start them at two because clients want to come in and I'll run them and used to be busy as till four o'clock and then I could go at four. And I'd done more consults than I would have done between four and five, you know, just because I was allowed to change it. But so many places you just know we've always done it this way. This is what the clients want. Is it? Is it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Did did these clinics actually ask clients what they wanted? Was that part of their their values? Do you know? Actually, I didn't ask that question, so I can't answer that for them. Yeah. Um, But, you know, you can tell from the clients are happy. So I guess that that was a good thing. And yeah, they didn't seem, um, there wasn't feedback from the client. You know, and the feedback that I got from the clients, there wasn't anything about there's too many part time stuff. I don't see the same person. There wasn't any of that. sort of feeling because you do hear that feeling sometimes yeah you, know. you hear it but is it true yeah I'm not sure yeah, yeah. you know I, I hear yeah. it a lot from vets but I wonder whether it's vets think the clients think that or because mm. it really is is true I think there's probably a balance between seeing someone differently every single time you go to having some continuity between two or three people I was thinking about you know the local GP practice they are so big now. GPs don't work five days a week. They work three, approximately. They do six out of 10 shifts or something like that. Um, so they've usually got an off-sider that does the other days during the week. So you, at, at minimum, you see two, maybe three because of their you know, holiday locum as well. Francesca, mm. you're speaking at, you're one of the, the speakers, presenters at the NZVNA, NZVA conference next month mm-hmm. in June. Yes, yes. This is sort of your topic, what sort of clinician do you think will benefit most from attending your presentation? So I I guess my aim in my presentation is not to keep regurgitating the research, you know, I refer back to that and that, but is actually to start changing the narrative to now to let's work together to start making some changes and how do we support each other? What are the things that we need to do helping maybe helping people that attend to actually have a look at the blind spot a little bit and try and dig into that a little bit and have a wee bit more of a think about being really, really critically reflective about what they currently do and have they actually tried things or is it a myth what they're thinking, you know, about how they do things and encouraging people to be brave and to get, seek feedback and make some change. So I think anybody that's a practice manager or in a leadership role in a vet practice, sitting around a board table, any of those things, or anyone who aspires to get into leadership. So you're maybe aspiring to be a head veterinary nurse or lead, you know, lead vet of a team, because you don't have to, you know, own the business to do leadership. There's all sorts of leadership roles. And actually coming into that, I, I believe that, we should try and encourage as many people on the team to lead aspects of the practice as possible because they take ownership of it. And so I think there's a lot that can be learnt 
certainly as the owner um, of a practice, you set the culture and you set the the um, the overarching strategic vision and values and things. But everybody within the team contributes to that culture and the leadership and buying into things. And I, you know, so I think anyone who aspires for positive change in the industry for the well-being of staff, which will move on to being the well-being of animals and their clients. And the literature will tell you that that also um, improves the financial outcomes for the practice as well, should, you know, come and listen and be part of the group. Because I think what would be great is to start getting groups that talk to each other. And maybe I know there's this whole secretive can't talk about the business, but actually if you start sharing a little bit more, you're all going to grow your business rather than, you know, taking from each other. You know, yeah, we've all got yeah. things to share. Yeah. We can actually be a lot more collegial, I think. I think we like to think we're collegial and we are in a way. Like when we go to conference, we're pretty sociably collegial, but business-wise, we're not always as collegial as perhaps we could be. So somebody listening to this podcast, they could be thinking – that I've got what what sort of things might they be considering their their staff turnover absenteeism yes. yeah so to turnover um so the literature will tell you that anything turnover over around 15 percent per annum is problematic you're always going to get the odd stuff that has to leave because stuff people will go back to where their families are often or maybe a partner gets a job overseas things happen you can't do anything about those ones um, but if it starts to crawl higher than that um, most of the literature will tell you it's around usually around the team culture and the management of the t- and that's the reason that people leave and they might not tell you that either they might not be honest about why they're leaving um, but if your turnover is creeping over 15 percent that would be a risk and yeah absenteeism if you've got people that are you know using all of their sick leave or maybe even taking unpaid days when they you know you use all their sick leave it doesn't mean they're lazy or that they're of got a hangover or whatever it can often mean they actually physically cannot come to work because the culture is so toxic they're not going to be able to cope they know they're not going to be able to cope that day um, and so that that can be something you know it's worthwhile looking at that and saying wonder why that you know actually asking why that's happening the, the thing about um, absenteeism from sick leave but also people changing you know moving on to other jobs is twofold one is it's really expensive to re-employ staff it's not just the cost of advertising or but the it's cost actually, of the recruiter or the cost of the recruiter absolutely not it's actually it's up to depending on the literature two to four times the annual salary per for a year for one one changeover and that's because they're slower um, it takes another team member out to actually train them up the trust with the clients is not there because they don't know them and they knew that you know there's a whole pile of things that build into it so actually if you were having a you know, and so, some practices seem to have this concept of a veterinary nurse or any of their allied veterinary professionals as being kind of disposable and they'll just leave every two years and that's fine. But actually, you could pay them double and keep them and that would cost you about the same as them changing over every every two years. That's That's the reality. And what also happens is if savvy new employees will look at the practice and find out what your turnover is and they'll see how long your staff have been there and the the ones that are worth employing probably won't apply because they'll be wondering why they'll be thinking there's a toxic environment there there's some reason why people are leaving I don't necessarily want to be there Um, and and it's a small industry word gets around as well so it actually will negatively affect your business even more because you might not you might get the best applicants for your jobs either as well yeah I Listeners, I did a recording on an episode on what people are looking for when they start at your place and how you can get more bang for your buck. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes page as well, because people are doing their research online before they start with a clinic. They are going online to to find out what people are saying, what employees are saying about that clinic. In terms of job dissatisfaction, and these are um, term the hygiene factors there's working conditions so what are, what are the conditions that you're working under you know 50 60 hours a week <laughs> in a building that's running water on the insides of the windows and you know it's freezing cold or boiling hot or you know really noisy and you can't get away from the noise or there's no tea room you know just that kind of thing I mean we and I'm talking about a companion animal practice I guess if we talk about working conditions you know what you're expected to do on farms that would fit as well um co-worker relations so what's the team like what's the culture like is everybody getting on that's really important having a set of policies and rules um and 
I'm sort of really cautious with policies and rules and the fact that policies and rules where they're needed and where they're actually functional, not rules that are rules for rules that are never that everyone just ignores anyway. But actually, if we need a policy or a rule for whatever reason, so it might be around, say, radio, radiation safety, okay, you need to have some rules around that and we need to all follow them. That's that's fine, but some some rules might not be you know might not be necessary. And maybe pull something up, and I'm pulling this out of my head rather than from the research. But you know, some places you'll see they've got a blanket, no cell phone policy. Well, is that actually functional? Why are we saying that? You know, so what what is the role around it? You know, is it actually none in consults? Because we might use it as a calculator or as a photo, as a camera. And do you know? So is the role functional? Um, and is it necessary? Uh, but having the ones that are in place, in place. <laughs> or everybody knows there's a no cell phone policy, but nobody takes any notice of it. Exactly. Yeah. So there's absolutely no point in having that rule if that's the case. Yeah. Um, but I think you should always, um, if you're going to have a policy rule, ask why are we having that rule. And then um, use the five whys and then whatever your answer to that is, ask it again why, whatever that answer was, and dig down to figure out why that rule is. And you might figure out you don't need it or actually it's this part of the rule that we need but not the rest of it. Supervisor quality, so that's around leadership um, particularly and that's not just the owner, that's the leadership of teams as well if you put a team leader in place as well. So making sure that all the leadership have got support and mentoring, um, some sort of professional development plan about leadership and base wage and salary. So that's a hygiene factor too. Okay, um, and if you go and look at Maslow's hierarchy, which everyone's probably familiar with, your basic human needs—you know—you need to be able to eat and drink and have shelter, you know, yeah. those sort of things. Um, so they're the hygiene factors, and then the motivator factors are around job satisfaction. So the things you look at around achievement. Can I achieve what I need to? And it might be in the case of um, success in cases. Uh, it might be achieving, maybe you want to do some extra study and achieving that, you know, but being able to achieve what it is you want to achieve. Recognition for what you do. So just simple thank you sometimes might be um, all of these practices had regular staff awards, you know, which everybody voted on and they tried to share them around, you know, for recognising cool things people had done. Have some sort of responsibility. And I mentioned that earlier around leadership, like, is it possible to find something that everybody can take some ownership for and have some responsibility for in the practice and you actually defer to them for how, how does that happen? The work itself, this I don't think is virtually ever a problem in veterinary practice. People go to work to fix animals and care for animals. So I don't think the work itself is something we need to worry too much about. Advancement, so people want to be able to progress. So a veterinary nurse doesn't graduate as a veterinary nurse and just want to go in there and do the same old job. They want to be able to progress um, and a vet, the same, the majority the same. So like I said earlier, creating professional development plans to help them progress how they want to, wherever it is, and either create the roles for them, because I think there's opportunity in most practices to do that. But if there's not, you know, they're going to become a specialist, let them go, give them their wings and then let them go. And personal growth. So that fits in that as well with that professional development. And also I think leadership development as well and other kind of no, dare I say, soft skill kind of development as well around communication, well-being, all of those sort of things too. So allowing personal growth, um, and I guess you know, in some ways, if we interpret that a little bit too, is also allowing people through the rostering system to access coaching at a local club, or you know, those sort of things. Uh, you know, going and being the team coach because that will feed back into the practice as well because they'll learn things from dealing with other people as well. Did any of the the clinics have common? development themes they all had kpis around well-being and so they and were ensuring that staff were getting access to either professional development or as a team working together on looking after their own well-being um, i don't think they didn't have specific themes in terms of everyone was doing one thing but they were trying to meet the needs of the staff that were that were in the practice in terms of what professional development they wanted and it's absolutely not just about what the person wants because it might be that as a practice if you do a performance review process well you actually are looking at maybe there are some things that some weaknesses for that person that they can develop that will be better for the practice too so it's a it's a two-way thing it's not about giving everything to the employee it's about working together to identify where the growth areas are needed sort of for the practice but for them personally as well yeah did the clinics conduct exit formal exit interviews 
So none of these ones did, um, but they all had really, really low turnover. Um, and so we took, we spent more time talking about how they had modified their employment processes to choose the right people because the ones that they had lost um, that they could tell me about were all ones where they had made a poor employment and then they could pinpoint what they'd done wrong. Yeah. I believe exit interviews are a good idea, but again, I'm not 100% sure that people will be completely honest if the person there, the reason that they're leaving is conducting the exit interview. Yeah, yeah. exit interviews yeah. and employee reference checks are something that we, we vet staff can do for clinics if that's what they want. 100% independent and confidential. The Hertzberg model is a really good one, I think, for picking up the majority of the other aspects. Yeah, I think the other thing, I'm just looking through the last time I presented this, two other things. One was that these practices recognise mental wellbeing, because I think there's still a little bit of a culture out there with some people that they don't recognise it, um, or because they don't suffer stress or or don't acknowledge that they, I'd actually say don't acknowledge that they um, suffer stress, they don't recognise it in other people, but they also don't understand that the levels can be quite different in other people and the way they react to things. So these practices were very clear on they acknowledge it and they put things in place for the for people to manage it. The other thing which I thought was really interesting with these, because as an educator, we hit upon clinics that refuse to have students or just make the student experience really bad and others that just are amazing and make these wonderful experiences. And I was interested to know, did these practices that were well, what was their relationship with students? And so in these three practices, in fact, in two of them, the students were invited to be part of the focus groups that I did at the practices, and they often deferred questions to them. They wanted to hear what they thought, and the students' reports on these practices were amazing. They said, best experiences I've ever had, felt so welcome, felt like I was part of the team, you know, all of Everything was really positive. The practice, and the practice said, we love having students because they teach us new stuff. They help us to make sure we know stuff because we can explain things to them. Um, and so they really, um, so my, I guess my hypothesis that came out of that was that, or proposition was that perhaps if a practice is really well, then they're going to find it a lot easier to welcome and stuff because they're not having to look after their their own self, so they're able to give to others. Whereas if the practice is unwell and maybe them not accepting students or students having a poor experience is, a, is an indication of an unwell practice because the staff just actually don't physically have the energy to deal with students because they're just coping with surviving. About students, did you do this research because it was something that Francesca was interested in, or did you do it because you could see that with research, then it can be included in curriculum? I think I go back to the fact that um, I'm a typical female child, I guess, who wanted to be a vet from when I was five, and I saw myself going into practice, and I, I guess... You know, I saw myself, I'd work in clinical practice and I'd own a practice, you know, like kind of traditional kind of stuff. And when I started to get into the realities of it, it's not all, you know, what you perhaps see as a five-year-old and, you know. It's, um, it's not all puppy kisses and kitten cuddles. Yeah, and I don't think I thought it was quite that. But you know what I mean, you know, just a little bit of a roast into glasses effect. And when you go in there and you see that there's just some – it's difficult to have a family and work in practice. See my my colleagues and friends leaving practice or going into other things. I see students coming back. You know, we've they've spent thousands training, and within five years, I think eighty five percent of vet nurses are out of the industry within five years, something like that. Yet, you know, it's such a valuable profession. Vets cannot function without veterinary nurses. You know, um, the we put a lot of investment into it. Um, yes, there's a lot of great career options outside of clinical practice, but we still need vets. We're short of them now. You know, we still need them. And I think it's all of those things together. So I want to make it better for, I can't do it on my own. I want to be part of the movement to make it better. I think there's some amazing people out there that are doing some really amazing stuff, but I think we need to get those voices heard a bit better. And I think we need to share the stories of success a bit better. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was, I guess, that's my motivation around doing it. In terms of part of the curriculum, I guess we try and teach awareness of well-being and you know compassion fatigue and all of those kind of things. And also we try and teach empowerment of the allied veterinary professionals too. It's, it's not a it's about being assertive really about not just putting up with being the I don't know the 
the brush or the dust, you know, but actually to stand up and say I'm a valuable member of the team, this is where I can contribute and how I can make it better for everybody. Yeah. That I think is one thing for nurses that one of the good things that has come out of the with the borders being closed, I mean, we've had shortages for a long time, but with the borders being closed and no no excess of vets coming in, that nurses are now being asked to, to use their skills, the skills that they learnt. Mm. And it's in, what I'm hearing is it's increasing their job satisfaction as well. Yes, and I've definitely heard the same thing as well. I think our next challenge now is to look at um, modelling around actually increasing the ratios. So these practices, I think New Zealand's roughly one-to-one across the country, one-to-one and a half, one one vet to one allied veterinary professional or one and a half allied veterinary professionals on average. These practices were one to three, but we know overseas it's one to four to five, you know, with your receptionists and things. I I, I got a bit excited the other day when I got a one to two. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so these ones were um, at, at their peak times of the days they were one to three Uh, so that included a receptionist and uh, so veterinary receptionist and um, support staff but obviously the models overseas would show one to four um, and someone was telling me about one to five as well so you know my experience as a one to four was brilliant I loved working in that practice and I felt like I had good job satisfaction and I think the staff did as well so the other staff so the new research that I'm doing it's multifaceted and I'm going to be collecting some data around utilization and then um, we want to go back and present some models around utilization as well because at the moment that we get asked so tell us how to do it and although we can sort of go oh yeah but there's nothing clear so I want to create something that's much clearer yeah yeah, a, a roadmap. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do we move into that space? And and also, yeah, get rid of that concept of, but then I'll need less vets or I'll I'll have to do more after hours and things like that. Like how do we move from that? And I, you know, I know Ian McLaughlin's, I'm pretty sure it was Ian McLaughlin's, or no, it wasn't. It's um, Seton Butler's just done the map for Vet Council, hasn't he, of a different way of looking at after hours. But I also know when that's put on screen in front of a whole pile of vets, you get quite a different sort of viewpoints on, you know, on whether that would work or not. Yeah, so, that will yeah. work for them, but... Yeah, yeah, or well, I'd rather answer you. the phone is what one vet told me. <laughs> yeah, because I don't trust the person answering the call. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So you do get some, you know, some interesting feedback on it, but I think we need to start moving into, you know, into that sort of space as well and so yeah hopefully doing a a little bit of modeling will help with that too and show that it won't it'll actually have positive impacts because vets can be vets Hmm. don't think so there'll always be something else you know 3am I could talk for hours on all of this stuff I'd I'd love actually what I would like is after the conference to hear what what transpired for you did you you know, have you got suddenly people lining up to to do temperature checks on their clinics? Sure, yeah. Yeah, that would be. So I'll put a plug in here uh, for if any practices are interested in helping share with me some data without giving away all their business secrets to help me with doing some modelling around charity discounting, um, staff utilisation and how you invoice as well. And again, I'm not asking for all your bottom line figures it's more broader stuff so if anyone's interested I would be really interested in hearing and how how would they send what sort of how would they send that data to you I'm going to have a survey that will go out so the survey will be published eventually and spread around but if anyone's interested in getting it directly I can so um, so somebody who's got like a listener with who's doing community work charity work if they email you that they are yeah. interested. What's your yeah. email? Address? But even if they're willing to share how they um, how they put together invoices, because I'm interested in utilisation as well. So you know what what ratios do they have, and then how are they showing, you know, the support. So so there's different aspects of this project. It's a multifaceted one. I'm going to collect all the data in one go and then break it into three projects. So um, looking at how things are invoiced for, you know, like uh, do we have an anaesthetic technician? Are they invoiced for? How's that? made up how are you costing for that where did that figure you know I'm interested in where the figures come from you know when you create a a, a theatre fee did you just pull that out of your head or how how was that made up so I'm interested in that and then how do you present it to the client because I'm also and where I don't need the, the the figures it's just the breakdown of how it's done and then I'm interested in how clients interpret different bills so you know 
with very little information, more information, lots of information. So there's, there's, it's a multifaceted thing, but I can send out all the information about what I'm after. But if anyone's interested in helping, yeah, and then I want to do some models around discounting and charity and how that could become a basically a really positive part of veterinary practice rather than a, we shouldn't do that. And so we'll keep doing it under the table. Okay. So if I yeah. put your email as a link mm. on the show notes yes. to this yep. page, yep. What what's your deadline, Francesca? I'm collecting data this year and maybe okay. get one project written up by the end. But okay. yeah, we've, we're sort of going to get started short, just waiting for ethics approval and then we'll right. be away. So over the next three or four months collecting data. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. If you're interested in knowing more about being part of a veterinary kick-ass mastermind group, then please get in touch. Julie.south at extra.co.nz. I'll put links on the show notes page for this episode, pause, claws, wetnoses.fm. Likewise, if you want to know more about doing exit interviews or running an independent temperature check in your clinic, a staff temperature check, then please get in touch as well. Because these are all sorts of things that vet staff can do for you. We don't charge body parts. Thank you for listening. Remember to click the follow button wherever you listen to your podcasts so that you don't miss out on future episodes, actually, as well as so that you don't miss out on future episodes of Pause, Claws, Wet Noses. It also applies to other podcasts that you listen to. So just hit the follow button, click the follow button. It doesn't cost you anything and you'll be notified straight away. Coming up on Paws, Claws, Wet Noses, we have Dr. Brian Greger of the Vet Podcast. Dr. Brian, as I have said before, he's a former clinic owner, now retired, living the good life, making cheese, getting as much fishing in as he can in and around Timaru while he's podcasting. As I mentioned last week also, I feel pretty privileged to have caught up with Dr. Brian on the show because his podcast, The Vet Podcast, is what Paws, Claws, Wet Noses has dreams of being when it grows up. Also, there's more, so wait up, because we have also coming up Dr. Megan Alderson of the Strand Veterinarian in Parnell, Auckland. Dr. Megan is one of New Zealand's great advocates of and has lots of fun with the serious topic of veterinarian mental wellness in clinic. Thank you for listening. Ka kiti ano, kia kaha, manaki ti atua. Paws, claws, and wet noses is sponsored by Vet Staff. If you've never heard of Vet Staff, it's New Zealand's only full service recruitment agency, 100% dedicated to the veterinary sector. Vet Staff has been around since 2015 and works nationwide, from Cape Reinga to the Bluff and everywhere in between. As well as helping Kiwis, Vet Staff also helps overseas qualified veterinarians find work in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Vetstaff.co.nz Vetstaff.co.nz